Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I'm your host, Scott Chaloner, and you join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to welcome Alex Mills onto the air. Alex is an artist, barber and owner of Handsome Jacks, a barbershop in Glasgow. Um, Alex, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us today. No, fantastic. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure having you join us on the um, air, Alex. Um, whole reason we are here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, which I think it's fair to say is one of the greatest challenges for leaders of our time, it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent the whole situation has affected you and your business. Right, yes. Well, what the? I mean, the biggest problem, I think, for everyone initially um, was where the hell are they going to get a haircut after this? And we thought, oh my God, you know, are we going to be doing a home cut? Is, it, is this only going to last for a few weeks? And I think initially people thought it was just going to be a very short period of time. Um, when it became a three to four month issue and the COVID um, virus became a very serious thing, I think everyone really did start a panic, especially within the barber industry. Um, the one of the biggest sort of issues we had was obviously money, and because a lot of barbers are self-employed, um, I think they really did start to panic about earnings, um, you know, paying rent, paying mortgages, paying all the all the different bills. And I do know that uh, a lot of um, people really were starting to panic, especially before the grants got announced. Um, so, and because I actually have three salons and soon to be four, I was also very worried about how I'm going to support um, these salons and whether or not there would be anything left at the end of the four months. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, that, that, I mean, that's kind of my wee answer there. I can, I can carry on going if you like. No, I've got to say, it seems as if um, that sort of period in between the lockdown being called and then the announcement of the government support um, really was an uncertain timer for business, absolutely. And um, now, of course, there's a bit of a clearer route forward. Of course, salons are reopened yes. with new safety procedures. But do you think that almost that lockdown, that post-lockdown hangover of all of these safety procedures in place, can you see that being the case in the sector for quite some time yet? I certainly do. I mean, of all the industries um, in, in most countries, I mean, barbershops really should be a very sterile environment anyway. Cleanliness is something, I mean, I certainly pride myself on in my salons. And I know that a lot of my um, ex-colleagues who now have their own business, it's something they pride themselves on. You want to make sure that if a customer is coming into your shop, cleanliness is key. And that was before all of this. Um, so I, I, I mean, I also think a lot of barbershops thought we would open sooner because of this fact that, you know, all our equipment is always clean and tidy. Um, the chairs that customers sit in and the minute they walk into the door, cleanliness is something you want the customer to see because I know that even if there's too much hair on the floor, for example, um, although you're not necessarily going to get anything from that, it's still not nice to see. So, I mean, I have no issue whatsoever with things being extremely clean constantly. Um, 
And let's even say there was no COVID thing. The whole wearing a mask now, I know a lot of people think there's some uh, daft conspiracy that there's something going on behind the curtains to make people wear masks, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. Um, And we have no issue wearing masks. None of my staff do. Um, And if it makes people feel better about coming in, um, then I'm, I'm happy to wear a mask. Um, for the foreseeable, it really doesn't bother me, um, and we we have all the the best cleaning equipment in, uh, and I have a, I have an actual cleaner that comes in once a week as well. Just it's just keeping on top of this, and I have no issue with that because I want people to feel like when they do come into my salons that it is clean and that it's a nice environment for environment for them to come into, um, and that they leave feeling great and that you know because you always you always want a nice review from a customer you always want to be recommended from the last customer that came in you hope that they tell a friend to come or a group of friends to come and I think at the moment people really are um, sort of worried about this virus and where it might lie but if if they know they're coming into a clean environment it does make things a lot more easier for both staff and client Mm, it certainly does having that um, reassurance um, absolutely right and when we think about um, sort of the mental effect of, of all of yeah. this um, as leaders in our profession so many people during this time have looked to us for a little bit of reassurance and a little bit of guidance and inspiration during this time as to what's going to be happening during all of the uncertainty and yeah. that is mentally taxing for a leader because it is a lonely place where the details aren't always clear sometimes and there isn't really anybody above you to refer to and yeah. as well as that you're also having to sort of safeguard the mental well-being of those concerned colleagues around you as well so from managing this from that standpoint how has it been over recent weeks and months at the very beginning um i think because there was no clear guidelines in how salons should be set up um a lot of guesswork and sort of i mean i hate using the word common sense because i think common sense is very rare i like to call it rare sense so and I, i think a lot of barbers, um, social, certainly all their social media, um, sort of kept in touch in in regards to how we are all going to come together to make a salon safe for both staff and customer. Now, we all have all their parents. Some of us might have all the grandparents. Um, you know, every family has something going on, whether, whether it's a health issue or a disability. Or even just, as you say, like a mental, just a mental worry about this whole thing because we don't want to get it and we certainly don't want customers to get it. We don't want our families to get this thing. And so at the beginning, there was a lot of guesswork. So we thought, right, we're going to have to have place our area sectioned off per section so that each um, customer is separated from the next customer. We're going to have to get the hand sanitizers in, which obviously stupidly all disappeared at the very beginning and um, because people just panic by, they panic by toilet paper, they panic by um, cleaning um, equipment for their hands. Um, so I think at the start we thought, oh my God, what if we can't get this stuff and we need to open? Um, so then there was a worry for me, what if I can't open on it? Because in Glasgow, it was actually the 15th that we could open. Mm. Um, and I thought, what if I can't open on the 15th because I can't get um, hand sanitizer? Um, 
and but I mean, I was very, I was very lucky uh, in that regard, and I, I do have. Uh, clients who've become friends who have their own businesses um, in trade in trade business so they were able to get me hand sanitizer I was able to get actual little machines so I, and so people could just put a hand under it without even touching it um, so that they, they could wash their hands on a, upon entry so it's it, it was just this constant worry and I knew that a lot of my staff um, have I think one of them has Crohn's so he wasn't coming back till a lot later. So I then didn't want him coming back and feeling that I wasn't getting everything set in place for not just customers, but for him as well. Uh, and then one of my staff members, he's fine, but uh, his mother, I think she was high risk. She is high risk. And even now, she, he still worries about that. Um, but my biggest, my biggest concern is people who ignore this and they believe they better than this um, virus and they ignore the mask rules uh, they refuse to wear one um, and in that regard I mean I don't want to lose clients however I'm not going to let these people in um, if they refuse my, the rules of the house so to speak because I want everyone feeling feeling comfortable about coming in and I would hate it if let's say for example you came in and you were worried about this whole thing regardless Let's say you had an ill grandparent who you had to give food to all the time and you didn't want them being passed anything. Mm. I would want you to come into my salon and go, oh my God, this is great. Everyone's got masks on. I can wash my hands upon entry. I'm being dealt with. I mean, we've been appointment-based anyway, so it's very easy to manage the the traffic that comes in and out of my shop. Mm. Um, so you could come in, you feel great about being in, and you even see us turn away people who don't wear a mask. So you know that we are bang on with this. Um, but I just I want everyone, both staff and client, to feel comfortable about coming into my shop. Um, but it's it's just a constant, constant worry. Um, the biggest worry I have is if one of my staff members somehow catches this. Uh, needs tested, it comes back positive, and then you've got to go through the whole route of, you know, what now? Do I, do we need to get all the staff tested? Do we then need to contact all of the customers who have previously been in? Will they come back? If they think, oh my God, this shop's not clean, someone's got the virus, they've potentially given it to me, and then do I need to shut my shop for two weeks, and then I've still got rent and bills to pay? So it's it's just, I mean, I love what I do. I love it every day. But during this, it's I worry a little bit more because I don't want to shut my shops. And barbering at the minute is very difficult because not a lot of people are working out of their homes mm. now. So, sorry, no, they're not working in the cities anymore. They're working from home, so they don't really have a need to get as fresh anymore, to to look as smart anymore, and um, and you just think are we going to lose a certain percentage of clientele now because mm. they have no need to get ready? So yeah, on a business perspective, we do worry a lot. Um, I think it affects everyone very differently, uh, both, you know, mentally and physically, you know, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it is, it's, it's trying times. And I think you've really got to step up your game to make sure your, your businesses keep running. 
And you mentioned there as well um, the fact that um, you worry that with more and more people working from home that businesses, particularly in the centre of cities and towns, are going to be missing out on business as a result of that. Um, it's Absolutely. exactly the reason why, of course, the uh, the central government in Westminster has started a back-to-work drive just to make sure that people are returning to office premises and it's going to yes. drum up business for those uh, city centre units. Um, but of yes. course, one of the big challenges throughout the uh, the pandemic thus far for the likes of yourselves in Scotland especially is that little bit of deviation in strategy between Westminster and Holyrood, of course. Um, with that in mind, just sort of weighing up the two different sets of guidelines, advice, rules, um, has it been a smooth process for you reopening and getting back into business or has it been just a little bit more complicated? Well, see, to begin with, when England opened two weeks before, um, it was a bit infuriating because I think Scotland as well, there are less there are less people living in Scotland. Um, and we, they had been very strict up here. I think in some regards stricter than um, England. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not necessarily for the SNP, but I do think Sturgeon did do a bit of a, a strong job up here um, in regards to keeping everyone in and just making people listen and hoping people will listen. Uh, what you got very sick of was people constantly blaming, whether it be Boris Johnson or Nicola, um, for example. Oh, we weren't told that we should have been told to wear masks at the very beginning. And my answer to that is, well, why didn't you? You don't need these people to hold your hand. They're they're given guidelines, and it's up to you to follow them. Those guidelines can be as strict as possible. Um, I tried to follow them as strictly as I could. You know, I had little deviations now and there, um, but I didn't do anything, I guess, stupid, so to speak. Um, you know, I did go out for walks and stuff. Uh, I met my girlfriend and things like that, went on nice walks. But, you know, the, I do think there does need to be a, a sense of your own, um, there's that word again, common sense. Mm. The rules can be there, they can be put in place, we can be told to do X, Y, and Z. But if you choose to miss out Y, then you've only got X and Z, then what right do you have to complain if something goes wrong? Now, with businesses opening, and I do, you know, I do think it is a good drive to get people out of their homes and back to work, but that's only if they're going to be following the rules. I mean, you can see how bad things have been with bars and nightclubs opening. Um, one, you know, these people, you know, the bars could have the set rules in place, but the more people drink, the more their inhibitions start to disappear. So these bars might be working so hard to keep open, but when people are coming in and they're abusing that sort of um, framework or strategy that these businesses have got in place, then you're just going to get start getting more and more people catching this thing or just starting to risk it a bit more because they think, oh, it's over, I'm fine. But it's not necessarily about me and you. Me and you might be fine till the very end of this, but it's about other people and how you might affect someone else and then that person affecting someone else and then who are they going to meet up with? And um, So, yeah, it's, I, I do believe the governments, both governments, England and Scotland, it is quite infuriating how they're, they're so separate. Um 
But I do believe in that in their own way. I mean, we've got advisors on both sides. They've got their advisors underneath them, and they can only repeat what's being told to them or what they think is the best way to deal with this. Um, but what I think most people need to remember is that this is a new virus. It's very different to other viruses, like the common cold, for example. Um, and we are all kind of dealing with it together. Uh and, and I think so far, apart from the odd little outbreak, I know we've had a little outbreak in Glasgow just the other day and she's put uh, certain areas of Glasgow into a sort of a recommended lockdown, so to speak. Uh, we can't visit large house, we can't visit households and things. Um, but hopefully once this is revisited in another two weeks, we can get back to uh, another little sense of normality because the last thing we want is businesses closing down again. Um, because there is only going to be so much money that the government has on both sides. And, you know, they were very generous towards small businesses up here in Scotland. And I'm assuming they were very generous to um, small small businesses in Glasgow, in uh, England, sorry. But, you know, when does that stop? And if people keep abusing this, are we going to just run out of money? Is it all these businesses going to close? Are people going to end up in a lot of debt? You know, so it's... I do believe a good job has been done, but now I believe it's up to the people to still remain on the straight path here and not be silly and not divert off and make sure they are wearing a mask or just keeping clean and just not being just not being stupid. So, so yeah. Mm. And when we've, of course, been thinking of the, uh, that deviation, um, as you say there, there's still been a sense that we're all in this together. There's been a real sense of a national unity amongst all yeah. of this, which is really, really encouraging. Um, and hopefully that's something that we can take forward into the uh, the next uh, few months as well. Yeah. Um, just before we wrap things up by addressing the uh, the future and what is going to come in the uh, the next 12 months, I just want to touch on one other thing here. Yeah. Um, a lot of people say that a leader's role revolves a lot around being able to inspire people. So I'm interested yeah. to understand who have been some of the inspirations to you throughout your life and your career because i understand that the name of your business handsome jacks that's actually named after your grandfather isn't it yes yes it was um my granddad was he was my my best friend um and i i actually wanted to name my business after him uh prior like before he died and but sadly he did die he was 95 uh he had a great innings um and i just thought i would just continue his his name throughout Glasgow um, and then I, I mean my big dream one day would be to open in the northeast where he was from um, so I you know but that's my next step that's my that's my big step so to speak and um, if it doesn't happen it doesn't happen um, as, I, as I mentioned I'm going to have four salons in Glasgow um, alone and Paisley as well uh, so as, as my, you know it's lovely having my granddad's name above every shop and on all my um, products. And even like we, we do sell some merchandise as well. And it, it's even nice when people wear that T-shirt or that jumper. And I know that actually that's got a lot to do with my granddad or hearing people talk about Handsome Jacks. I'm like, that's my granddad's name. You're saying, you know, and so it's, that's amazing for me. And it's amazing that people want to come and work for me or they get in touch because they want to be part of the Handsome Jacks family so to speak um, and one one big drive for me when I was when I was younger about 10 years ago now I did Camp America uh, and that that led on to the barbering to begin with initially 
Um, and now I'm all about encouraging young people to get get yourselves to Camp America. Go and enjoy your summers. Don't waste your summers in jobs that you don't really care about because you never know what it's going to lead to. Don't just get stuck at home on a job that you hate because there's no point. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a, I am a firm believer in action, action and going for it. I think there's a saying where it's like, the tree that you're sitting next to that was planted 10 years ago so don't wait another 10 years to plant your tree do you know what I mean you know mm. you've, you've got to go for it and that's why Handsome Jacks happened because I just, I just went for it and I always thought what if I get in 10 years time and I look back and I wish I'd done it um, but now I can happily say that you know I'm glad I've done it and it's gone so so well um, and I've encouraged a lot of people who were customers who are now friends and who are now colleagues to give up their jobs that they hated and to join me um, and to learn from me and to become part of my my dream. Um, some of them leave, some of them go and try different shops, or some of them might, might even go and try their own shop. But it's lovely to know that they were they had that opportunity because I give them give them the chance to to come and join me. Because the, the problem is when when you want to train to be a barber, for example, or get into a trade later in life. A lot of places won't take you on if you're older. Because, you know, there is the whole pay thing. You've got to pay people a lot of money once they're older. You can't, there's no, like, um, there's no cheaper way about it. Um, but you've, you've just got to give these people a chance because once upon a time I was given a chance. So I like, I like to pass that on, you know. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed for those people out there who may not be happy in their day-to-day jobs and are maybe considering taking a bit of a plunge and going into oh, business for oh, themselves, absolutely. for sure. Absolutely. It's, it's infuriating. The amount of people I listen to who hate their job, and I, I just think in my head, I'm like, when do you think this is ever going to get better unless you do something about it? You know, everyone's in charge of their own destiny. Nothing's going to happen. How many people do you speak to where they say, oh, I can't wait to win the lottery. Oh, when I win the lottery, I'm going to buy this, this, and this. And it's like, well, I'm telling you, that's probably never going to happen. And they're just they're kind of idling by in a job they can't stand. They're living for the weekend, wasting all their money on God knows what, and then wondering why they don't have any money. And they're not investing in themselves. They keep, you know, they, they keep buying really expensive clothes are an expensive car because it looks flash, it looks nice, but really, you know, those are just material things. I think what if you're not happy in your job for the limited time that we're here, you know, some people some people die tomorrow very young, some might live till their 90s, like my granddad. You want to make sure that what you're doing is really what you want to do um, and not just something for the sake of it. I think a lot of people get stuck in this trap that it's too late for me or I'm too old for that. Well, one of my staff members, he he started when he was 34 and he's doing absolutely brilliant. And I know he has aspirations for his own shop, which I hope one day he does, whether it's um, in partnership with me or by himself. But he, he hated his job and he did something about it. And that goes the same for a lot of my staff. A lot of them were, you know, they, they were just fed up. But they never had that kick or they never really took that chance. Um, and then eventually they did. And I, guess, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, I hope they listen to this, but I think they're happy. I, I certainly hope they're happy. And I've got a cracking team of lads and they all hated what they used to do. Um, but you just you just always wish when you talk like this to people that they do listen and that they go home and they do rethink their future. 
because nothing's just going to happen overnight. Things might things might take a week or a month to slowly get rolling, but if you've got a goal in mind or a career you want to do, then go and do it. No one's stopping you. The only person that really ever truly stops you is yourself. So, yeah, that's my thoughts on that one. And thinking now about the uh, the next year or so, we know we're going yes. to have to adjust to a new way of living and a new way of working. But during yeah. that period of time, what do you yeah. think is next for you and for Handsome Jackson? What are you really hoping to achieve as we get to grips with this new normal? Well, I, I, as I said, I'm opening a fourth salon um, very soon. I've actually I'm going in a partnership with um, my colleague David. Um, it is because I know that he did want his own shop. And I spoke to him and I convinced him and I said, well, you know, why don't you join me and we'll, we'll go on this together and we'll get a bigger unit. And um, so there's the growth there and he's now part of my brand, which he also loves. Um, and I mean, as I said, my, my big, in the next year, I would just love to see all my salons surviving, to be honest. And I mean, the, the guys who work for me do a fantastic job. Um, I've got a great team. The shops are doing really well. We've got a lovely reputation. I mean, you'll, you'll always get your naysayers. You'll always get your people who complain or they're not happy about a haircut, which is just to- it's totally fine. You've just got to roll with the punches and everyone will be happy. But you just hope that, let's say, a year from now, things are still going well. You know, the shops are continuing to have a good name and remain clean. And, you know, just it's just a, just a happy just a happy salon, so to speak. Maybe there'll be another one coming eventually, or maybe I will get to do that one in Newcastle. But you've, I guess it, it's it's too hard to think too far ahead. I think it's always good to think about the now and what could happen potentially in a few days or next week. Um, but you've just got to keep going. You've got you've got to keep keep your spirits high. You've just got to and keep your businesses running really smoothly, and just hope hope your staff are happy. You know. It's certainly going to be an interesting time over the uh, the next few months. Um, a lot of businesses yeah. are just taking it, of course, by the week, by the month, just to try and get through this period. And there are still a great many variables in the economic recovery, let alone a yeah. potential second spike in cases, which God forbid, of course, that comes along. Um, but just given how enlightening it's been and considering how exciting these plans are that you do have on the horizon, Alex, I actually think it would be fantastic if in a few months' time, once the situation becomes a bit clearer, we could catch up and have you back on the programme just to see how things are coming along oh absolutely i'd love to i'd love to i think that would be wonderful i've really really enjoyed having you join us today it's been a very very enlightening experience for myself as well just hearing your thoughts on this and most importantly until we do speak again hopefully please do take care and stay safe with all still going on you too thank you very much and thanks for getting in touch with me I was speaking on today's programme to Alex Mills, owner of Handsome Jacks. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords and enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the Lords back in August 2015. I hope you all enjoyed listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and all of that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. 
Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. Uh, I've not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system uh, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now- it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government, but we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, for the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.